brothers Cain and Abel, and how we had talked a couple of weeks ago about the promise that God made that through Adam and Eve would come the Redeemer, would come the promised one. And their first child, Cain, Eve thought that this is the one, this is the one. Well, we found out last week Cain wasn't the one. He ended up killing his younger brother, Abel, and get to the point where they're, they're, they don't know what to do. And we see, as we left off last week, that God blessed them with another son. His name's Seth. We finished up last week talking about Cain's line, and we're going to tonight look, starting off in chapter 5, look at the generations of Adam, as it starts out chapter 5, through the line of Seth. So let's go ahead and do that. Now, as we do this chapter 5, I don't know how many of you have read chapter 5 all the way through before. If you have, probably only once, because you said, okay, all it is is it's going to give me a name of somebody. It's going to tell me how long they lived. It's going to tell me who their son was, and I've read that before. It's kind of like walking through a graveyard looking at tombstones. You've seen them once. You've seen them all, right? I do know that there are some people, though, that are fascinated with tombstones and actually enjoy going on walks through graveyards. Not a morbid thing, not a, not a death thing, but just, you know, history and that type of stuff. There are some pretty funny tombstones, actually. I got a couple that just have cracked me up. I've kept a list of them. Uh, some of these Old West tombstones, one of them says, Here lies Lester Moore, four slugs from a 44. No less, no more. There's another one from a man who was hanged because he was caught stealing sheep. It says, here lies the body of Thomas Kemp, who lived by wool and died by hemp. <laughs> one here from Boot, Boot Hill Cemetery. Here lays Butch. We planted him raw. He was quick with the trigger, but slow on the draw. <laughs> here lies a man named Zeke, the second fastest draw in Cripple Creek. <laughs> And probably my favorite one, short, sweet, to the point. Here, he called Bill Smith a liar. That's on his tombstone. That's it. Well, what we're going to do tonight, chapter 5, is we kind of go through a cemetery looking at some tombstones. We see names. We see a little bit about them because names meant something back then. And we see the information as we talked about, how long they lived and their family information. So let's start looking through this together. Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them. And he named them man in the day that they were created. Here we see that first one where it says man. That word literally is Adam. When Adam had lived 130 years old, he became the father of his son, of a son, in whose likeness, whose own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Well, one of the things I've asked the media team to do here as we go through this, we're going to do this relatively quickly, but I want to put the names and what those names mean up on the screen. First, Adam. His name means man. The second, his son, his name is Seth, and Seth means appointed or appointed one. Now it says, goes on, verse 4, it says, Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Adam lived for 930 years. We talked about that at the very beginning, when, when God said, You will surely die when you eat if you eat of this fruit. They did, and they surely did die. Now it took 930 years but Adam did die. Now it goes on, 
Verse 6, Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Now, Enosh means mortal or frail or weak. The word, the name carries the connotation again of man, but emphasizes the mortality of man. So Enosh, named mortal. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Canaan. Now Canaan means sorrow, sorrow. Now Enosh lived 815 years, and he became the father of Canaan and had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Canaan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalalel. Now, Mahalalel is interesting. That means blessed God. Mahalalel means blessed. And El, if you'll know, if we've talked about the different names for God, Elohim, El Shaddai, El means God. So his name means blessed God. Then Canaan, verse 13, lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Now, Jared means to descend or shall come down. Shall descend or shall come down. Now, Mahalalel, verse 16, lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Now Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Now Enoch means teaching. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Now, we finally get to something that changes a little bit, the st- We get a little bit more information about this guy named Enoch. All the other ones were very much the same, just talked about their names, their offspring, how long they lived. They all had other sons and daughters. But here we see something different about Enoch as we get into his epitaph, if you would. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Now this Methuselah, this name is extremely interesting. We're going to get into a little bit more about it here in just a moment. But it means, his death shall bring, or when he dies, it shall be sent. His death shall bring. His death shall bring what? Well, let's take a look. The verse goes on. It says, verse 22, Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Now, here's where it gets different for Enoch. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Here we see the big difference. All the other ones said that that he died after a certain point. Enoch, it says that he walked with God, and God took him. Enoch didn't die. Enoch walked closely with God. They had a very special personal relationship. We're going to look at a couple other verses. The Bible fills in some details for us later on. But the Lord just basically said, come on up here, Enoch. After only, at the ripe young age of 365 years. Now, we read a little bit more about Enoch in Hebrews chapter 11. He's in the hall of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5 and 6, it says, 
by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So we understand that not only did Enoch walk with God, but he had tremendous faith. And we're going to look at another verse here that shows that Enoch was a, was a prophet. But many commentators put this all together that because of the fact that Enoch named his son what he did, his death shall bring. And we put it together with some information that we find out a little bit later. E, Methuselah, his son, died the very year that the flood came. So putting that together, God had this great relationship with Enoch. Enoch was a man of faith. He walked with God. He talked with God. He heard from God. He believed in God and what God had to say. And God shared with Enoch that his son, the death of his son, would bring about a great catastrophe. And naming his son this, his death shall bring this. Enoch believed that and prophesied that by naming his son this. We also see that Enoch was a prophet in Jude 14 and 15, where we learn a little bit more about Enoch. It, it says, Jude 14, it was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they had done in an ungodly way and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now notice what Enoch is saying here. And you can write this down, and I, 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 you note takers, go and check this stuff out later. But Jude 14 and 15, the prophecy that Enoch is talking about is talking about the coming of Jesus, his second coming. He's prophesying from way back here before the flood about Jesus' second coming. Jude told, tells us, behold, behold, the Lord came with his many thousands of his holy ones. Those many thousands of the holy ones, that's us when we return with Christ on his second coming. The prophet Enoch. And here we see in Genesis chapter 5, him prophesying the coming flood by naming his son what he does. Well, going on, verse 25, it says, Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Now, Lamech means despairing. And if you'll remember last week, we talked about someone named Lamech, different guy. Different guy, and he was in the line of Cain, if you'll remember. This is in the line of Seth, different Lamech, but his name means despairing. Then Methuselah lived 782 years, verse 26, after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. So here's Methuselah, Enoch's son, living 969 years, the, the oldest recorded man in the Bible. He lived more years than anyone else recorded in the Word of God. Which, if we put that together, the fact that God prophesied by, when he was born and named that the flood was going to come when he died, doesn't that show the long-suffering of our God? He waited 969 years after prophesying it was going to happen before it actually came to place. And we're going to see that again played out when he gives 
120 more years after that, or at, to, at another point when he, when he talks with Noah. We see our long-suffering God. The world going in a horrific direction. We talk more specifically about that in a moment. But we see his long-suffering. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the heart of our Lord. That everyone would turn from their wicked ways and turn to him and receive salvation. All come to repentance. 969 years through the life of Methuselah. Verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Now Noah, you can tell by his name, the way his father talked about, Noah means comfort. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. Verse 31, so all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Now, the chronology, the listing out of names as you've seen before, you've read it through before, but I want you to look at the right-hand column of the names and what they mean. Man, appointed. Mortal, frail, weak, sorrowful, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching, and his, his death shall bring the despairing comfort. We have in this genealogy of names the gospel message in Genesis chapter 5. Isn't that amazing? Is that, is, 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 that, a bunch of Jewish rabbis sitting around can't think that up. That's not a coincidence. An amazing thing. And we, we think sometimes when we go through these things that, you know, it's just a list of names. It's really a neat thing. Now, a couple other things that we can gather from this before we move on. The flood, if we chronologically add together all of the time frames, the, the, the ages of all of the people we just went through, the flood happens 1,656 years after Adam was created, when we, we add up all of those together. That, includes, that would indicate that there's no gaps in the genealogical record, just as it's recorded here. There's extremely long lifespans, 900 years, 700 years is the, the shorter one, 777, you died a young guy if you died at that age. Now, we're going to talk about this when we get to the flood. We won't get to that probably tonight. But what, the, what happens when the flood, the canopy that's surrounding the earth, comes, comes down as part of the flood. So we don't know exactly, but there was pr this, this canopy, the thickness of it, kept out the UV rays from the sun and that type of thing. So people lived a lot longer. There's uh, the hyperbaric chambers that people, you know, faster recovery times, they do that, athletes now. There's some evidence that that was the condition of the earth at the time. So things, you healed faster, there wasn't diseases like there are today, uh, a lot of other things, but that the population went on. Now, also, we're going to see in verse 6, now it came about when Ben began to multiply on the face of the land. Multiplication of the the population was happening very rapidly, very rapidly. 
They were multiplying, not adding. There's a very good possibility, and there's a lot of conservative estimates. We don't know any of this for certain because it just says they had many other sons and daughters, many other sons and daughters all the way through this. But there's many mathematicians that have put this out there that if, let's just say, Adam and Eve had on an average one child every five to six years, for the, and I, I, I'm trying to remember exactly now because I've seen so many this last couple of days, but if it was, I think, up until the age of 500, and each one of their children did that on down the line, by the time that Adam would have seen well over a million of his own descendants during that time, and by the time the flood came, there would have been over 7 billion people on the, on the face of the earth. So there, it's not, we, I know sometimes we get this thought and when we read this and we've only, we're only five chapters into the book, we've got to think, oh, there's a couple thousand people on the earth when the flood came. No, there were billions of people on the earth. One last thing, a couple of things, I guess, before we move off of this chapter. Again, there is no filler material in the Bible. It's all in for a reason. I heard a story one time that a friend of mine told that a guy, they had finally gotten this guy to come to church with them. And uh, he, they had shared the gospel with him many times, and he just was very resistant, but he came to church, and they knew that if they could get him to the church with them, this pastor always gave the gospel message in such a powerful way. They were just convinced this was going to work. Well, he agreed to come. And when they got there, the pastor taught Genesis chapter 5. And, there's, and my, the, my friend and I is just sitting out there and he's going, I cannot believe this. Finally get him to come. And it get, so all the way through, after an hour, and he went into far greater detail than I did on all of the names and all of the other stuff. And he gets to the end and the pastor gives an altar call. And the guy stands up and comes running from the back of the church to, to give his life to Christ at the front. Afterwards, my friend says to him, he goes, what, 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 what do you, I, I've explained the gospel message to you so many times, and it never, never worked before. What was it about this message? That, and he goes, didn't you listen to anything he said? <laughs> All of those people that he talked about died. And it just struck him that I'm going to die someday too. <laughs> and I better get this whole thing straightened out before then. So... Anyway, the, the Word of God is powerful and active, and when we let it do its thing, it's an amazing tool. So we let it out of its cage and let it do its thing. Anyway, one last thing, another thing about Enoch that is such a, a beautiful picture. Enoch was taken by God. He brought, took him up to heaven. And we see a beautiful picture in Enoch of the church being raptured out of this world and taken up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, it says, We who are alive and remain will be caught up and meet the Lord in the air and will be with him always. Enoch's a beautiful picture of the rapture. We're going to get, when we look at the ark, Noah in the ark is a beautiful picture of the Jewish nation being kept through the tribulation period. But as Christians, we're not going to be around during the tribulation. And we'll get into more detail when we get to that. So, all right, chapter 5. Now let's move on. Chapter 6. Chapter 6. Now it came about, well actually the last verse, 32 of chapter 5, Noah was 500 years old and Noah came, became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, his three sons. 
We'll talk about them much more detail as we move along. Chapter, verse, chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Here we have four verses that carry a tremendous amount of controversy and discussion and argument as to what they mean. What does it mean, the sons of God and the daughters of men? What is it, what is it talking about, these Nephilim, these giants, these big... What does that mean? Well, there are a couple of... There's several theories. A couple of them I'm going to share with you tonight. The first one is that the sons of God refer to Seth, the line of Seth. As we talked about, this is the godly line. This is the line that will eventually, the Messiah will come from. And the daughters of men, that theory conclu concludes then, are the daughters then from Cain's line, the ungodly line. And when they mixed together, just as in most instances, the, the negative evil line pulled the good onto their side, the bad apple spoiling the good, if you would. Now, there is a lot of persuasive argument as to why that is the case. More of it has to go against the second view that I'll share in a moment. They point to that that can't be for several reasons. And again, I, I can't go into all of the details back and forth. I read pages and pages and pages of information about these, these different things. I'll share with you a little bit and then share with you what I believe. And you can certainly research this some more yourself because the Bible doesn't honestly tell us. It tells us this information right here. And both of them, as I want to share with you tonight, really either way, it doesn't really matter because both of them carry the same point across. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? The word of God is very clear that we are not to put ourselves together in union with unbelievers. I know, I know, I know. I've had several friends, two in particular, that got married and they said, I know this is God's will. I know that I'm going to be able to convert her, bring her over to Christianity. I know it. And this is, and I said, man, the word of God says don't do it. You are not the exception. The word of God says no. Both of them did it. And as far as my knowledge is, neither one of them are going to church anymore. They've been pulled completely away. And th that's what happens more times than not. And that's why God says, don't do it. Don't do it. What do we have to do? Light with darkness. Now that is the argument that many use on this side of the equation is that's what happens. The godly line of Seth mixed with the ungodly line of Cain and they became ungodly. We see that with the Jewish people. God told them when they, when they took over the promised land, 
Don't leave any around. Go in there and completely take it over because if you don't, you will become like them. You're going to start worshiping their idols. You're going to get involved in that. Don't intermarry because that's going to be the problem. And it happened. It happened again and again and again throughout the history of Israel. So that's, that's one of the theories. The other theory is that the sons of God, that word in, in the Hebrew is beni Elohim. And it's used three other times in the Old Testament. And they're all three in the book of Job. You can jot these down if you'd like. Job 1.6, Job 2.1, and Job 38.7. All three of them refer to angels. All three of the other uses of this term refer to angels. God is having his staff meeting, if you would, up in heaven with the sons of God, it says, referring specifically, obviously, to angels. And it says, and Satan was present. And they started talking about Job. Satan says, yeah, you know, and you know the story. Job, yeah, yeah, let, let me have him for a while. And that's the sons of, sons of God that's referred to. Now, there are quite a bit more, there's quite a bit more biblical evidence that that is the case. First of all, I want to tell you that some of the reasons why people believe that it's not, that it can't be that, is because Jesus said in the New Testament that angels don't marry or, or give in marriage. That, they're, that they can, they're, they're spirit beings, so that they can't be human in nature. They couldn't, they couldn't have relations with a human and pr- produce other children. There is the other thing, too, where the, those angels that are referred to in Job, other than Satan, were good angels. And good angels obviously wouldn't do what is being outlined for us in chapter 6. But it does say, if you look at Jude verses 6 and 7, it says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in, under, in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Jude here is obviously talking about angels that did what those that were punished in Sodom and Gomorrah did. And he talks about here that these angels have been placed in eternal bonds because of what they did. They, they're already in, in hell forever. They're already bound there. So, what, how could this possibly happen? Again, I don't know. I don't know. Again, the, there's very good evidence on both sides. I happen to tend to lean towards the second one that we talked about. because For the reasons, like I said, in Jude, and there's a couple other verses too. How could it happen? Well, we know throughout the New Testament there's talks about demon possession. Third world countries, still that goes on today, demon possession. And we talked about a couple of weeks ago how we open the door in our society through a lot of other things Witchcraft, the occult, opening the door to demon possession. It might not be like, like the omen and floating above the sheets and everything, but it's, we're, we're opening the door to darkness, and our, our children are so susceptible to that. I mean, it's scary to the point where there's just there's open Satan worship in our society. We have all too willing participants to be involved in it. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we are in a spiritual war, that we battle the spiritual darknesses, there are spiritual forces of darkness and wickedness. It's very real. 
Understand, though, that demons can only possess those who are not Christian and those who willingly open the door for them. As Christians, we are secure in that. We can be, we can be tormented. Job and others can be tormented. We know that. The enemy, the, the Lord allows us to go through trial, but we will never be possessed. We can never be possessed. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen? But it does come about that this is a very real possibility. And that's why it is, again, so important. This isn't children's play. This isn't a game. And it's something that needs to be taken very seriously. Now, another controversy that's in this, or I shouldn't say it's not a big controversy, but verse 3, where it says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. What does he mean by his days shall be 120 years? Again, one of the thoughts is God now is limiting man's life expectancy or, or they won't live longer than 120 years. Well, we're going to find out that that can't be the case because several people live past that after this and then shortly thereafter nobody lives that long. So that really seems like an arbitrary number if that's the case. Most commentators believe, and I'm, I believe that th what God is saying here is that 120 years from when he said this, that's when the flood is coming. We need to understand that God saw how evil and wicked the world was becoming, and we're going to see that as we continue through our verses. And Satan's goal, regardless of how we see it, with the two options that, we that I looked at earlier with you, regardless... Satan has one goal, and that is to contaminate the human race. So that if he can contaminate the whole human race through, with wickedness, Christ could never come through that line. So that is his goal in all of this. And God, in his sovereignty and his protection, keeps that from happening. Again, we talk about God's long-suffering in this situation. Again, giving another 120 years before he destroys the earth with a flood. And we see here in verse 5 as we continue with chapter 6, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Now, regardless of what verses 1 through 4, whatever side you want to fall on with that, it really, honestly, like I said, doesn't matter. Verse 5 gets down to the heart of the issue. Regardless of how it got there, the man's heart, every intent and the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. That's where we ended up. That's where the world ended up. And God could have just made an ark right then himself and gotten it over with. But he gave 120 years through the building process of the ark, and a man that he chose to build the ark and to share the, the, the grace of God and the love of God with those around him for those people to repent. Again, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Now we see as we continue on, verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Grieved in his heart. Here we see the heart of the Lord. Again, it's, 
as we continue through here, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land and, and from man to animals and creeping things and the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. The grief that he has. This doesn't mean that God is tr- changing his mind. That, that, that what the writer is trying to do here is trying to give human characteristics to God to help us understand how his heart is breaking as he is seeing unfold what is unfolding. Again, it's not taking God by surprise, but it's happening. The only illustration that I could come up with that we can even put our finger on is our own children. I know that when I had kids, there was going to be a day that my son was going to be, that was gonna, he was going to hurt himself terribly. I knew it was, it was inevitable. We live in a world that's like this. There's a very good chance my son's going to break his arm at some point in his life. Does that stop me from having a son? Does that stop me from allowing him to go out and do that? No. And it breaks my heart when he hurts himself. But again, I know that's a very poor example, but it's the best one that I could come up with to try to help understand the heart of God in this. He he sees this. He knew this was going to happen. God is all-knowing. He knew that this is where his creation, that he created in his own image, would eventually get to. He knows that the sin that we commit in our life is coming. He knows that ahead of time. It doesn't take him off guard. Did you know that you you can't disappoint God because somebody being disappointed means that you, you did something they weren't seeing. You can't do that. God knows what you're going to do. He does. He allows us to go through that because we're not robots. And it does break his heart. It does grieve him. But again, just like through all the long-suffering, and we've talked about the past couple of weeks, confessing that. Where are you? Where are you? He continually comes to us. Where are you? So that we can confess that sin and turn back to him and be reunited with him. But we get a glimpse of his heart here. Then verse 8. I love this verse. have it underlined and highlighted in two different colors. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of all of this that's going on, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, a blameless in his time. Noah walked with the Lord. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Verse 13, then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. We are about to get into the story of Noah's ark, and the world would look at this as just a great children's story. You know, a great coloring book page with all of the animals sticking out of the side of the boat and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's just a great story. It's neat stuff, but it didn't really happen. And if it did, it was probably just a localized little flood in some little area. That's what the world would tell you. And if you watch the History Channel, they'll try to convince you that if there was a flood, it only happened in this small little area over in the Middle East somewhere. Well, we're going to find out as we go through this that this is, a, this is an actual worldwide catastrophic flood destroying every living thing except those things that are inside the ark. Jesus believed it. Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39. Jesus, when he was asked the question, when are we going to know when you're coming back? He said this, 
For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus refers to this. He fully believed that this was a real event. It really happened. It's mentioned 50 times in 11 books in the Bible. 11 different books, 50 times. This is a real event, worldwide catastrophic event. It's important that we understand that it's a real thing. And there's also an importance that we understand and we study it. It's not just a great children's story. Why is it important that we understand it? Jesus told us why. We just read it. His coming is going to be, is the time that he comes, it's going to be just like the times that were back then. Just like things were going on then. So we look at the things back then. Chapter 6, verse 1. We've looked at a few of these already. Exploding population. Did you know that the world's population now is doubling every, it's, it's less than 50 years. The entire world's population doubles. We are again in a population explosion right now. Chapters 1 through 4, we just read it. Organized satanic activity. Again, we see that going on in our culture right now. Sexual perversion. It's everywhere. How many, I, I probably, I'm, I, I remember when things were, that are on TV now were, were appalling on television that are totally acceptable. But many of you now, I mean, Ricky and Lucy, they slept in separate twin beds, right? I mean, the, the things that used to be absolutely unheard of are now commonplace. The world filled with corruption, verses 11 and 12 that we just saw. Corruption, it's everywhere in the world, isn't it? Everywhere. Filled with violence, verse 11. We read through the stuff that we read through in these, these few verses talking about the world at that time, and we can't help but look at the world we live in and say, we're there. We're there. All of the things as we talked about when we went through 1 Thessalonians, about the rapture and that type of stuff, there's not a single biblical prophecy that still needs to take place. And when we see what Jesus is talking about, that, that there's, there's nothing left, this could happen at any time. The signs of our times are pointing to it could be at any moment. And even more so, Jesus says, you know, they'll be eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. Everything going on is still, there is nothing happening. Nothing, no big deal. And I can see this going on back then. Noah gets the, he's starting to build the ark, and life is going on as normal. I can hear the conversations. Can you get a load of this guy? Building this big old boat out in the middle of here. You know, we the, the, the lake is, the lake's 50 miles away. Building a boat. You know, that Methuselah. He's going to die one of these days. What's the over-under on him now anyway? 900? And Enoch, did you hear about that guy? He just was walking around in the desert one day and he's gone. You know, I mean, life's just going on. They don't get what's happening. And we, we're going to find out Noah, for 120 years while he's building the ark, is talking about, guys, it's coming. I, I don't understand. I don't know what rain is, but it's coming. It's never happened before, but trust me, you got to believe this is, this is going to happen. And he was ridiculed, he was mocked. Life just continued on in an evil, wicked, horrible situation all around. 
But again, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor is the first time. That word is grace, favor. It's the first time the word grace is used in the Bible. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, Noah wasn't the only one that was shown grace. God, as we talked about, extended grace to everyone. Even though he knew ahead of time people were going to reject it, it wasn't just shown to Noah. God gave the same opportunity to everyone to turn and repent and come to him. But it was only Noah who found it. It was, the only, it was only Noah who found favor in the eyes of God, found the grace. Notice he didn't earn it. You can't earn grace. But he found the grace. And that's what makes our faith, Christianity, different than anything else is grace. Unmerited, unearned favor from God. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Notice verse 8 comes before verse 9. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then it goes on to talk about the fact that he was righteous and blameless. Righteousness doesn't come from good works. Good works comes from righteousness. We don't, we're not righteous because of the things we do. We do the things that we do because we're righteous in Christ. We do the things that he prepared beforehand that we would do when we follow him. His righteousness, it says. And he was blameless before men. Blameless in his time. Blameless in his generations, depending on which translation you had. He was, not that he was sinless, but he was a man of high integrity. People, people valued him. They made a lot of fun of him. They poked, they made, he was probably the brunt of most of the jokes in the neighborhood. But they respected the fact that he was a man of integrity. Above reproach. We've talked about that a few times on Sundays as we've gone through Timothy and Titus. Noah built an ark, but notice also that he built a godly character and built a godly family. He's a man of integrity. People looked at him, and though they, they made fun of him, again, nothing they could ever bring against him in, his accu- in an accusation could stick. i got to imagine that he was looked at as a good guy. Maybe a little bit off his rocker, but a good guy. He, had, he was a man of character. And he was a man who raised a godly family. Three of his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, listening to the ridicule, seeing everything that's going on around in the world them, around them, still chose to follow God. He was a godly man who raised a godly family. Now we don't know if there were other sons that he had and daughters that didn't follow the Lord, that were a part of the flood, we have to almost assume, he was 500 years old, that he probably had more children. Which would, again, show a couple of things. First of all, Noah was a godly man, raised a godly family, and he did that by keeping them busy, by the way, doing the Lord's work. He got them involved building the ark, kept them busy doing God's work. But it also, he had to rely on God's supernatural protection for his children. And the same is true for us as parents. There's a role, obviously, that we play. We need to raise our children in a godly way. We need to teach them about the Lord. We need to teach them the Word of God. We need to teach them to pray. We need to get them involved in in church activities and with other Christians and doing other things. But then we need to be on our face before the Lord in prayer because it's only a supernatural act that is going to change their heart to follow Jesus. We can do all that we can do But it's the Holy Spirit who has to change their heart as well, just like ours. 
We can't change hearts. Only God can do that. Oh, let's stop there. Because we're going to get into the size of the ark, and I have way too much to cover here in five minutes. So we'll stop right there, and we'll pick it up there for uh, next week. We'll get into the ark and then the flood and all sorts of other stuff. So we'll stop right there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of the genealogy that is laid out, your gospel message in the names that we looked at tonight. Lord, that, that from the very beginning, as we've talked about from all the way back, you have a plan in place for us, for our redemption, for our salvation. Lord, we thank you for godly men and the godly line that you, you preserved, the remnant that you've always protected. Lord, in, in the men that we looked at tonight, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, how the godly heritage was passed on through that line. As the world around them crumbled and fell into deeper and deeper sin, Lord, you protected them, and they protected your truth. And Lord, let that be a picture and an example for us. As the world around us seems to keep getting darker and darker, let us shine brighter and brighter for you. Being that example as Noah was, even though we can be ridiculed and made fun of in our neighborhoods and at work, Lord, give us the encouragement, the strength, the perseverance to shine all the brighter for you, sharing your love with those around us. Lord, let us be the godly parents that we need to be to, to continue that heritage in our families. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit moves powerfully on the hearts of our children, drawing them to you. Lord, we don't believe that, that our work is done. We know the time is short, but we know that the harvest is plentiful. Lord, raise up the workers. Thank you for your incredible grace. Thank you for allowing us to find grace in your eyes. Go before us now. Bless the remainder of our week, Lord. Give us opportunity to shine for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Keep on reading ahead, and we'll pick up there next week. Take care. Everything.